Hello, everyone. We'll give everybody just a minute just to get in. There's lots of people jumping in live. For those that are here, you can see on the screen our amazing illustrator, Alina, is driving a wonderful uh, visualization of today's session. She's broadcasting all the way from Paris, so that's fun. And while you're joining, feel free to put in the chat where you all are joining from. Would love to hear from you all. Feel free to ask questions, of course, throughout. And we'll go ahead and get started. So welcome to Work Now and in the Future. Today is probably one of my favorite, most exciting Work Now and in the Future panels. And it's because it's the topic that's so near and dear to our hearts at Living HR. It's all about um, human-centered work. And that's really our why at Living HR, which is to humanize work for everyone. I'm thrilled to have Madeline Lorano, the founder and chief analyst from Aptitude Research. Um, I also wanted to mention to everyone today's panel session in the, um, in the spirit of supporting humans goes to Feeding Tampa Bay. So our team will share a link if you'd like to donate to Feeding Tampa Bay. Uh, before we get started, I have to extend my appreciation to Madeline. She gave an enormous amount of patience to us throughout this research project. And we're so excited to share a little sneak peek of what we learned. Um, I've really built this up in my head about how important this is in the dynamic between employees and employers and how work is fundamentally changing and the purpose it serves in our lives is so different. And what I want to make sure everyone walks away with is the actionable steps to take so that your workplace can be more human centered. And I hope that the business leaders that are joining today's call also hear that there's zero fluff to this conversation. Um, there's so much great data. All of what we do at Living HR is not really about choosing profit over people or people over profit. It's really about realizing that people are the creators of value and they are what help us achieve every business outcome as well. And the good news is it also typically has better gains for humanity. So before we dive in, uh, Madeline, to the data, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about who you are as a human in and out of work in the spirit of what we're talking about today and what you do at Aptitude and a little bit about why you do it. Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm thrilled to be here and to share some of this research and talk about a topic I know we're both so passionate about. And I love this intro question. I don't think anyone has ever asked me that before. Who are, who are you as a person? And it's such a nice, a nice way to start. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Madeline Lerano. I'm a mom. I um, am a big hockey fan. Uh, my youngest son plays hockey, so I spend a lot of time in hockey rinks. My older son plays soccer, so I spend a lot of time watching him play soccer. Uh, I have a middle schooler. My older son's in middle school. So I am dealing with a lot of teenage tantrums <laughs> as I call them. And it's been, um, it's definitely been an experience, but um, I also, I like to run. Um, I love going out to dinner. I love traveling, which I haven't been able to do that much in the past few years. And I'm the founder of a company called Aptitude Research and we do research on HCM and work tech. 
That's awesome. Thanks so much. We're excited. I hope you are able to make it down to Tampa to watch some hockey here. The Bolts games are super fun. I know you're headed out on spring break next week. Um, so just a little bit of background on Living HR and Aptitude and why we did this work. It was really to demonstrate to the market, especially given all of what the pandemic taught us and how so many workplaces are really having to reinvent and reimagine work to compete in a talent market where there's over 4 million jobs that there's not enough people for. So, you know, a lot of this conversation is about how do you make your workplace one that somebody really does want to join and one that they want to stay at? And to us, the answer to that is really about making it about the people. And, you know, kind of given that first topic, I'd love Madeline to talk first about the people and what we learned in the research about what is it that the talent, the candidates, the employee, all of us really want out of work? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. It's so important because, you know, we're dealing with this great resignation that everyone's talking about. We're dealing with you know, over 4 million women that have left the workforce. We're seeing baby, baby boomers left the workforce earlier than we thought they would two years ago. And companies are in this experience crisis. And yet we don't necessarily look at what do employees want? What do candidates want? And what do they want from that experience? Um, so what really came up in the research is feedback and how important feedback is for that experience. We even did uh, research to candidates and surveyed candidates to say, what, you know, what would you like from this hiring process? And it was, I think, 78% of candidates wanted to receive more feedback. That was like the number one thing. They wanted to know what was happening. We don't give feedback. You know, it's a gift. I've heard it described as a gift. It's a gift to give yeah. someone feedback. And, and we don't do that. So that's definitely a theme that I think comes up. And it's, it's, it's free. Feedback's free. It doesn't um, take a lot of work. It doesn't take a huge overhaul. It just takes that change to, to think about, you know, how can I share with you some information that might be helpful? Um, you know, and the other theme that everybody's been talking about, and I know Carrie will probably have so much to talk about around this, is flexibility. So thinking about how do we provide more flexibility, employees want more flexibility, and candidates want more flexibility, and we have to think about ways to provide that. So those were some of the themes that came up. And then I think the other piece um, is around fair and equitable experiences. We have to be able to make sure that employees are treated fairly. It's so basic. And yet it's something that's just really been ignored by a lot of companies. Yeah, it's so interesting because of the amount of investment that we spend in other things that don't yield the same benefit. And it's almost, if I hear somebody say like people are our greatest asset and then not treat them as such one more time, you know, it's, it's, it's that simple really in some ways. And really, if you think about it, people are, you know, more of our greatest investment. And so they can have great returns, right? They're not just a line item on an asset sheet. But if you, from a human perspective, are looking for a workplace, you're not going to pick one that is all about their bottom line. It has nothing to do with giving of your time in a meaningful way. They don't let you take care of your family. They expect you to turn on a dime when the schedules change. They, if your family gets sick, you're out of luck. If your manager treats you like crap, oh, well, you know, I mean, those are the things that employees feel and see every day 
And, you know, what do you think that businesses can do about some of those things? You know, you mentioned you and I were talking about bereavement, even as an example, you know, what should employers do in these moments where as humans, we could use a little support? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple different themes that I'll pull out. You know, one is communication. You know, communication has been a big topic in the workforce, yet we just think of it as like one direction. Like employers are going to communicate what's happening or what our policies are to employees, and they're going to have to follow it. And if they're not following it, they're going to have to communicate with us why they're not following it. It's not bi-directional. It's not engaging at all. Um, so even within you know, that communication, we've lost kind of that human element. We um, did a lot of research on like employee communication. I know it's a big theme of you know, the feedback and the, some of the themes that we found in the, in the research report, but the number one vehicle for communication for companies, for over 60% of companies is just email. It's like, we're just gonna send emails. And then we found 47% of employees don't even open the emails. Yep. So, you know, I think one strategy to think about is can you change first the tone of your communication so that the communication is not, why have you not done this? It's more engaging and it's conversational. And then the second piece is what's the best vehicle? For every company, it might be different. It might be text for a lot of companies. It might be thinking about video. That's been effective as, as a way to communicate strategies, but that can really help to change the aspect and to make it feel a little bit more human. We did a case study with the state of Colorado and what they found is like nobody was participating in open enrollment. Like employees wanted it, they have over 50,000 employees. They all wanted to be part of open enrollment but they were just missing the deadline. And it was all email, like email reminder, email reminder. So they did just a change to communication. They started creating these fun videos. They would send text message reminders. They put even flyers, just, you know, that doesn't cost anything. Just put some flyers up in the cafeteria and yep. their open enrollment went from less than 20% to over 90%, which is just, just communication. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that's one. And then I think, um, you know, companies providing flexibility. If, if, you, if you think about bereavement as that one example, we don't necessarily have to give five days or two weeks or whatever it is right then at the same time, let employees be adults and figure out what they need when they need it. You know, grief hits people differently at different times. And it might be a year after they've experienced loss. So true. And that, that's part of like the human side of all of this, right? Is that we're not, um, we're not linear. We're humans and we're complex and we're, you know, we have emotions and all of those things. And we also have needs that I think even on a basic level, I think a lot of times organizations really don't realize the life circumstances that their people are in. And especially, you know, we were talking about the forgotten workforce and, you know, you think about, you know, those people that are, have been in blue collar jobs and during the pandemic, they were doing all of the grocery shopping and they were working in the restaurants and, and now they're not coming back to work. And so, you know, figuring out, you know, how do you, create an experience for them. And I know you had mentioned, it's not what a lot of employers think. It's not, it's not a just about pay. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that was like a big theme. And I was, I was one, I was guilty of saying that too. Like, why are we not paying hourly workers more, pay them more money, pay them. More money? And, 
you know, we went from paying just the bare minimum of minimum wage to we're seeing companies paying $15 an hour. We're seeing them paying $25 an hour for hourly jobs. And we're seeing them pay for people to come in for interviews for hourly jobs. Here's hundred dollars. Just take, just come in for an interview. And that's not enough. And that really, to me, has been such an aha over the past two years is to say, it's just not about pay. You know, people want flexibility. They want to be treated like humans. They don't, um, you know, want to be kind of forced into kind of these situations. And I think childcare and caregiving is a big piece of that. I mean, it's a big part of our research project together. And, you know, for you know, for me, if it's, if, if I have a kid that's homesick, I can work from home and sort of manage and juggle. If you're an hourly worker, you don't have that option. And right. it just doesn't become worth it at a certain point to, to feel that stress and to feel, you know, balancing personal and professional and, and not be treated with dignity. Right. And, you know, that is another great point. And I think it's happening more and more where the childcare costs outweigh what you would actually bring home in a paycheck. And so you think about populations, one of the things and why it's interesting that we have Feeding Tampa Bay as our um, nonprofit partner today is that so many, it's over 70%, according to some studies of the food insecure people are employed, right? So they're choosing between whether or not I get this paycheck and if I am going to eat or if I am going to be able to take care of childcare, or I'm going to pay my rent, or what I'm what am I going to do, and what am I going to sacrifice, and it creates health issues. And so all of these things are so interrelated. And I think you know while pay is almost like table stakes to me at this point, it's like you've got to pay people what the job is worth, and you have to pay them what they're worth. But that's not even enough. And so when you look at it, you know, and you mentioned flexibility, it's not just flexibility like, oh, I have to work from home. It's also flexibility in terms of, you know, when I work, it's when and where. And I think we forget the when a lot and focus right now on, oh, we all have to work from home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and for companies, we don't know, like it, we're maybe companies that are remote now might not be next year. We don't have all those answers yet. We have to be yep. flexible. On, on to, you know, where, where am I working today? What feels right? Where can I be productive? And not even for a full day, like maybe it's just, we talked about this even before the, the webinar, maybe it's I need two hours. Maybe I need two hours to take a nap, to, you know, deal with some stress that I'm going through in my life and I'll come back and perform even better than before. But I need those two hours. It doesn't fit into the one hour lunch break, but I need to take two hours. And that's where, you know, I think it is about from an outcomes perspective, do you care what people contribute and what outcomes they have, or do you care that they're working the defined schedule that you gave them, you know, what is more important and the organizations that are feedback rich and working in a more iterative environment and they're really collaborative people don't stay or can't survive as poor performers when they're bringing down the team and the outcomes aren't there. And so the problem remedies itself, you know, we have a culture like that here at Living HR. We have an enormous amount of flexibility. I always joke around that we did it before it was cool. You know, Mm -hmm. in 2009, we've just always been that way. And people, when given trust, live up to that trust. We've had zero issues, you know, and so it's, 
it, that trust factor is, I think, something else that we saw a lot in the research is that's what people are looking for. And if you don't give it, like, they're going to assume they don't have it. Yeah, and they're not going to trust you out of nowhere. They're not going to trust you because you put a statement on your career site. They're going to trust you because you're giving them, you know, opportunities to to feel that way. I mean, what we found was was pretty shocking. We talked about this before, too, is that only 9% of companies have improved that employee trust in the past year since the pandemic. And, you know, I think a lot of it is because it's not action. It's just you can make all the statements you want, but you have to put the action behind it. Um, So it's, it's important. I mean, that flexibility is important. And I think I love what you started off with around the profit focus versus employee focus. Because we asked that question right in the survey, what kind of organization are you? And, and nearly half said profit focus, which is understandable. But I love what you said, Carrie, because it's it's not one or the other, right? It's you're, If you're employee focused, you are profit focused because your employees are going to perform better. They're going to be more productive. They're not necessarily going to want to leave because they know that they're valued and appreciated. And you know, we have to kind of view it as the same thing, not one versus the other. Yes, 100%. <laughs> what, um, what were some of the, you know, in talking about the business and what their benefits are when they are human centered? I mean, that was the thing that I was so thrilled to see in this research is that the amount of data that actually supported that a human centered approach does create better business outcomes and does create better profit, better retention, a ease in hiring, which we all know is important right now, but yet there's still a small percentage of employers that are doing it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was great to see too, because it's like we came up with this idea for this project, then you don't really know how the data is going to support it. And what we found is that companies that do focus on their employees first and take that approach they are seeing improvements in retention. They're seeing improvements in performance. They're seeing improvements in revenue. And it's because they're, they have the people, they have the team in place and they're valuing them. And I think for a lot of organizations, they don't necessarily know how to make that connection. Like they understand employees or we know people are important. If you ask you know, anyone, if you, you know, do you want to treat people like humans? They're gonna say yes, but it just isn't happening in a way that's meaningful and it's not happening in a way that's consistent. You know, you could be treating someone one way and someone else a completely different way and employees feel that it feels very personal. So I think for, you know, a lot of organizations. Did we lose Madeline? So I think what Madeline was going to say is that for a lot of organizations, there is um, some really compelling data out there that if they put the emphasis on the employee experience and human-centered work, that it really does yield those better business outcomes. I also saw in the chat that, um, Cassandra, thanks for your comment. It's interesting that you say fair, um, and I agree with you. When we say fair, I think we're talking about fair market value. And um, what that means is what the market says other people are playing, but you're right from an equitable standpoint and also just from a uh, employee and candidate perception perspective, that often does yield different outcomes. So 
you know, fair is such a, a difficult word. I think equitable is also, you know, a, a probably a better word to exchange there. But what we're seeing is that the market pay is changing so much that in order to keep up with that, you've got to kind of know what other people are offering in this moment and um, be competitive to the market. Madeline, I was just commenting on um, the comment in the chat while you were um, dealing with the, the remote way of working. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back. Um, I'll Thank let you, you finish your point. Um, you were just sharing in terms of the business outcomes. Yes, and so sorry. I think we're having a little bit of um, some bad weather impacting our internet here. So I apologize for that. But I am back and um, hopefully uh, you, can, you can all hear me now. Um, so I was sharing kind of this, you know, idea that what we found in the research is a huge impact on business results from companies that take this employee first approach. And that was so positive to see, because that's what we were hoping that we would see in the research. And, and that's what we found. And I think for organizations that don't necessarily know how to do that, the positive thing is it doesn't take a huge overhaul. Like it's not going to take three years of you to change your whole company culture. You can start to do things in a short period of time and see those results. And one example that, you know, to me, it seems like such a, a basic, simple one is recognition. Like, can we say thank you to employees? Well, that's all recognition is. It's just saying thank you when something happens, not waiting till their one year anniversary to say, thanks for being here. It's doing it when moments happen that you should be thanking them. And what we found is that only um, one in two employees had even been thanked at all. Like during 2020, when everything happened, when employees were working from home, when they were juggling all of the things you had to deal professionally and personally, only one in two employees had been thanked at all for that whole year. I mean, it's such a basic, such a basic strategy. It really is. And it's, you know, from a living HR perspective, one of the things that we first do when we determine some of the different cultural elements that are their behaviors and are their ethos is roll out an appreciation program for people that are kind of living into those things because that's the stuff that it does feel good, right? And you don't feel like I'm wasting all this time at doing something that nobody even cares about or and so that acknowledgement and that feedback is, you know, it, it is feedback still to give appreciation. And I think people have this negative connotation of feedback instead that it always has to be constructive. And, you know, a lot of times it's really just people need to hear the acknowledgement. You did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I think that's so true about feedback. Feedback feels, it feels like a negative word, right? Like I don't, oh, I don't want to get feedback. Um, I don't want to hear what, what I did wrong or what I need to do better, but it's positive too. Feedback's a positive, you know, positive sentiment as well. One of the other things that I think we were uh, thinking or hoping to hear about in the research was around burnout and uh, well-being. And, you know, one of the stats that is in there is that 78% of companies have experienced some sort of productivity challenge because of burnout, but yet what the what they're doing about it um, doesn't seem it doesn't seem significant. I guess. Um, can you talk a little bit about that part of the research? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think we can all feel burnt. We've all felt burnout in the past two years. I know I I felt it more intensely in the past two years than I've ever felt it. And I think everyone's in the same boat. And for a lot of companies, 
they've not been able to fill positions that you know they may have had pre-COVID. They're doubling down on workload. We're seeing like a lot of companies in this high growth mode where maybe that wasn't the case pre-COVID where it seems like every company's high growth now. You're either you know trying to double revenue, trying to double headcount, you're trying to expand into new markets, you're creating new products. It's so much pressure and that that's felt right at that employee level. So burnout has increased. I think we all know that. And then employee employers just aren't really doing much to address it. I mean, at, at kind of the basic level, it's start to ask questions in your employee survey. Most companies do an annual employee survey or they do pulse surveys to kind of manage how they're, they're understanding employee experience. Start to ask questions about burnout in those surveys. Even if you haven't done it you know, years ago, put some questions in there, start to understand what's happening with your workforce. And then, you know, I think the great thing about where we've come, you know, in the past few years is that there's a lot of solutions out there, whether that's, you know, looking at financial well-being solutions, whether that's looking at, you know, how can we think about mental health? How can we think about providing this to employees on a more consistent in a more consistent way? And then I think the other piece of it is just having conversations, having open dialogue to say, how are you doing? You know, how are that? How are you? Like there was a, a big trend during the pandemic where you would start every call and say, how are you? Like we would never, we were never doing that before COVID. We were never saying, how are you? And we have to continue to do that. I think I've seen that that stopped a little bit. Um, sure. I know, com yeah, companies that do, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Talent Board, but they do surveys on candidate experience and they survey half a million candidates every year to see what their experience is. And they see a huge spike in resentment over this past year since COVID that all the empathy and all of the how are you's has sort of died down a little bit, unfortunately. And it, you know, it kind of goes back to even all the recruiters are overtaxed and yeah. so they're burning out. And so they're not showing up in the way that, you know, is, you know, potentially compassionate in a lot of examples because they have like 10,000 calls that they've got to make. And so, you know, that's where all this stuff becomes systemic. And, you know, to me, a big part of the burnout epidemic is also capacity and org design and really planning for how you're looking at utilization by team member. And a lot of the issue is that there's all these jobs, there's 10 million jobs out there that are posted. So all the weight of those 10 million jobs are being carried by the people that are internal. And, you know, you can, it's almost this, you can't hire fast enough because there's still knowledge transfer. There's still time for somebody to get really ramped up. And in the meantime, somebody else is, you know, covering all this additional work. And so it yields to tougher times for people. And so how do you spread that? And I think that's the part that's tricky where employers are having a hard time because it requires a lot of work to really look at what capabilities do we have? How do we redesign the organization and the structure of the organization to make sure people are doing the right things and that they have the time to do them? And people shy so much away from workforce planning. It's really like, what was our budget last year? Okay, we'll back into the headcount. And that's just not working. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's where they focus. It's just on on headcount versus where the work and how the work is going to get done and how they're going to support employees through that through that experience. But the the burnout is it's a huge factor and I think Carrie that point is so great about the recruiter experience and not just for recruiters but also for any employee. I mean, employees are 
having relationships with your candidates, they're having relationships with other employees. If they're miserable and feeling overwhelmed and underappreciated, you know, that's what the sentiment is going to be. That's what the culture is going to feel like. That's exactly what shows up for your customers too. And, and so that's why, you know, this does have a direct business implication is the employee experience, how they show up and how you treat them is how they'll be able to treat others. And so I think that's, you know, we could Richard Branson that conversation all over the place, but it, it really is so important for organizations to realize that they're not the ones in the towers that are actually interacting with the customers. Their people are. And so if their people are burnt out, if they're unable to do their job because they don't have the tools and they're frustrated and the technology is not working and all those things happen, then they're delivering the kind of experience that drives down your net promoter score. I saw somebody put a yeah. comment about employee net promoter in there. We measure that all the time. And there is a direct correlation between employee net promoter and your customer net promoter score. And that's, you know, another great indicator that this is not about fluff. This is about making sure you're able to produce as a business. Yeah, there was a study done. It was pre-COVID. I'll see if I can find it if anyone's interested in it. And it looked at like Fortune 100, like the most successful companies and the correlation between their employee NPS scores and their customer NPS scores um, were so similar. It's like, these are companies that, you know, really had invested in their people and they are the most successful organizations. You know, it's exactly, Carrie, no, not flop. There's another question in the chat that I wanted to throw out there that a lot of organizations are facing the tension from the different generations. And how do you ensure that every uh, employee is really feeling heard coming from those different generations. And, you know, I think the thing that is interesting about that is that the generational conversation, I mean, well pronounced, I, I think we all do kind of want the same things, right? Like in some way, we still all want to be able to take care of our lives. It wasn't possible before, you know, and, and the workplace has changed so much. You know, I'm a uh, uh, Gen Xer, and I still was required to wear a pantyhose to work in yeah. a very recent role, you know, so a lot of things have evolved, but at the same time, you know, we all want to be able to take care of our families. Like we all want to be able to be treated with respect. Like some of those things are more, are not about the generations. What things do you think are generational though? Is there any? Yeah. You know, I think, um, the interesting thing with like the hourly workspace, because we did a big report on hourly, is that a lot of hourly workers are over the age of 50. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that a lot of that workforce, they're not students kind of coming, you know, filling up summer jobs and seasonal hiring. A lot of them are people that just don't have the retirement saved up or had to use it for other things that they weren't planned for. And they're working two or three hourly jobs. Um, you know, it's, COVID has changed that quite a bit, but I think that, um, you know, the, this idea about retirement for baby boomers um, and that, the, that they have all this retirement and they're going to leave, we saw that really kind of break down over the past you know, five years, even before COVID. So I think that that sort of stereotype is a lot of you know, workers still need to work and can't retire when maybe that they would have wanted to. 
Um, I think the flexibility is true for every workforce, regardless of you know what generation we're talking about. The one stereotype I'll say that that we noticed really doesn't hold up is that millennials or Gen Z or wherever we're at now, they don't want to work from home. Like I think that's what everyone thought. They want to work from home. They don't want to come into an office. They want to go on the beach. That's not true. A lot of people just either graduating or early in the workforce, they want to make connections. They want to be in an office and they want to, you know, build relationships. So I think we kind of put these stereotypes in place to say, you know, younger workers, they don't want to work at home. So we're just going to be flexible, you know, and that's not necessarily the case. So I think we really have to think about, you know, what different generations want and what type of communication they want, what type of experiences they want and how they want to be treated. Um, you know, and I think this is probably true for younger generations, but it should be true for, for everyone is that feedback is so important. You know, they're used to getting that education's changed, like the way schools teach now and the way that students at every level engage, you know, in a classroom, it's a lot of feedback and that's what they're used to and they're bringing that into the workforce. And if they're not going to get those experiences, then, you know, they're, they're definitely not going to be happy with where they're working and they're going to look elsewhere. I think that is a great point too, is that a lot of that feedback happens. So in the moment now, um, in the world, right? Like in education and in, you know, even if you're going to go give a restaurant review or whatever, like you do it like live, right? And so people are used to that consumer grade experience that really from a technology perspective has to be brought into the workplace where we become used to a more live, you know, iterative approach to working together instead of things being like an email. Like nobody, I mean, when was the last time you really checked your personal email? Like nobody right. uses email. <laughs> so, you know, that seems to be like a huge disconnect in that communication problem, but also in the feedback problem, because if the feedback is coming through via email that nobody is really reading or it comes later and it's not in the moment, it, it's almost meaningless. Right. Right. So fast. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, another topic with kind of this generation, I love the question uh, with the generational conversation is around safety. Um, whether it's physical or psychological safety. And it's an important conversation that I don't think we were having before COVID. And now it's becoming an important one in, in the workforce. A lot of employees are not comfortable going back to an office because they don't feel safe. A lot of people are still very worried, rightly so, about the pandemic and about their health and, and, and fearful. And then there's the, the psychological safety. And that was a big part of the research too, is that what are companies doing to provide psychological safety and to show that it's not just, again, a statement on the career site, it's yep. something that they're committed to and to addressing so that employees feel safe and that they feel that they can be in a, in a culture that's gonna protect them. Absolutely, and that they have a voice, that they're heard, that when they say something, something happens. You know, that happens all the time too, where I think employees are sharing the feedback and it falls on deaf ears and they are so, frustrated that when a survey goes out, there's no response or no action and they don't see why they should keep saying something over and over and over again if nothing is going to change. And so I think that's a challenge for employers because the changes are sometimes big changes and they do take time, but that goes back to your communication and feedback is, you know, keeping people up to date more than in a monthly email that goes out in a newsletter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
What about um, from a like juxtaposed position between the employees versus the employers? Like some of the data that I thought was really interesting is from a productivity perspective, the employers are saying the people are working less and the employees are saying, no, 85% uh, of us are actually working way more. And so what, what are some of those other disconnects? Because that to me is that the constant push pull where there's, there really is like a broken contract that we need to redesign and create a new contract between what it means when you're contributing to my organization and what I'm going to give you for you to be successful. Yeah, that, that was the one that stood out to me the most is that productivity is that employees are saying, I'm working now more than I ever have before. And you can see that. I mean, we know that from friends that we have, from family members, people were working, you know, around the clock for the past two years. So the fact that that's not validated is so concerning to me. Some of the other ones were well on well-being, like companies saying we're increasing our investment in well-being and employees saying and not recognizing that they have those opportunities. And that's a result of maybe some, some companies have made investments, maybe they have more benefits for well-being, but employees don't know about that. There's a communication breakdown somewhere, or it's not necessarily what employees need. You know, it's not just the yoga class once a week um, at, you know, at the company. It's not necessarily what everybody wants. So it doesn't necessarily lead to well-being for every person. So the, the well-being disconnect was, was a big one. And then the flexibility disconnect, where a lot of employers were saying, you know, we're giving more flexibility now than we ever have before, and employees just were not feeling that. You know, there's a, there's a big feeling for individuals, especially high-performing individuals, that they will not be able to get the same opportunities if they're not in an office environment, mm -hmm. if they're at home. And when you have a hybrid model where some employees are back in an office and some are still working from home, employees are gonna feel really disconnected and they're gonna feel like they, maybe they don't have those same opportunities. And it takes a lot of work for companies to think about how can we make sure everyone is getting those opportunities and feeling part of a team when they might wanna have very different work experiences. I, I completely agree. And I also, the thing that also struck me in this particular data point was that 64% of employees don't feel valued. I mean, just on its surface, uh, that is why people are leaving organizations, right? They simply don't feel valued, appreciated, respected. You know, I mean, there's a lot of words that probably roll up into that for them when they're answering that question. But what are employers doing to actually make sure that they are? And, and that's, to me, the problem is that they're doing a lot of things, but they're not, they're not the things that employees are asking for. And so there's just this miss and this giant disconnect between, you know, I want to feel valued. I want to do well. I, you know, nobody is really going into work saying, I, you know, I want to suck at my job. You know, that's not the intent. And so, you know, how is it that while the organizations say they're investing, the people still aren't actually receiving it. Yeah, and I think it's shocking to organizations that their employees would feel that way. I think a lot of companies over the past two years, as we've had this kind of like hybrid model, have done things like send gift baskets, like send, like we'll send you some free snacks and a gift basket. We know you're at home. You know, we know times are challenging. Here you go. Here's like a gift card to get, you know, gas. We know gas prices are, are ridiculous. And 
those are great. Like that feels great for 10 minutes. And then once the snacks are done and you build your car up with gas, you're back to the reality of not feeling like the work you're doing is being recognized. And, you know, for companies that want to, to be able to show that value, I mean, the, I go back to the recognition because to me, it's such a simple solution. I mean, you can invest in a recognition platform, but I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about finding a way to consistently thank the people that work for you and then hold managers accountable for that. Make that part of their KPIs. Have you thanked your workforce? You know, what was the last time you thanked an employee? You know, hold them to those metrics. It's, it's, it's so powerful. A thank you is so, so powerful. And I think if we can kind of make employees feel that they're valued, that can go a long way. Um, another strategy, and I think we talk about a little bit in the report, um, is around employee resource groups. They're, they're a valuable asset, but if companies aren't using them correctly and they're not empowering them and they're not having leadership connect with the employees that are participating in those groups, then they just don't become very valuable at all. And that's a challenge I think a lot of organizations face is they have ERGs in place and they're just not they're not recognizing the people that volunteer all their hours to support them. And then they're not empowering them to make a change and to value employees and to be able to find out what's happening and see, you know, behind, you know, what leadership might not be able to see. And they're also giving voice, right? And so that's another powerful way that they can be leveraged is because, you know, there's different groups and identities coming together that have a very different lived experience. And that experience is then not negated or, you know, or washed over in some way because, um, because there is no group to share it, right? Or no platform to share it or no way to bring that feedback up. And so, you know, ERGs are great from that perspective. Which brings me to the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging right behind communication in terms of the future state of human-centered work. Investing in DEIB transformation was number two. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, that's a huge part of creating a human-centered workplace. If you aren't doing that for everyone and, and people are excluded, then then you're not really going to be successful because you've got leaders that are having people that simply they don't want to follow them, right? They're, they're not a part of a team. They're not a part of a group. They're not a part of a collective and they're afraid of speaking up and there's not a platform to do that. So what are the things within diversity, equity, and inclusion um, are you hearing and seeing um, as most important? Yeah, so the first step, I think, and I think this is in the research was, was shocking to me is how few companies think that they have to make improvements in that area, like that they don't provide fair experiences. So the first step is to, to be open and honest and say, we do have some issues, we do have work that needs to be done, and we need to make a commitment to this. So that's kind of the first is recognizing and not saying we're fair to everybody, you know, we don't have um, any issue with diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We, we provide everyone with a great experience. You have to be open and honest about the reality. And that's the first step. And then beyond that, a lot of companies just turn to training. Like we saw companies spend millions and millions of dollars on training over the past two years. And that's usually spent to a consulting firm or to a, an RPO company that would, will do that work. And they'll come in and they'll put some structure in place and then they leave. And you know, for a lot of companies that feels like you've checked a box, it doesn't really feel like 
the work's being done. So I think it has to go beyond that. I think it, it comes down to everything we've talked about as part of this. It's the communication, it's the voice, it's the feedback. Um, it, it all provides a better way to address diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And you know, we have to kind of look at the, the full picture and not just have a training once a year and think that, that we've done the work. 100%. And it's interesting because 88% of the companies said in the research that they believe that diversity, equity, and inclusion is important to leadership, but yet what they're doing to invest in actual work in this area is so limited beyond training. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we're seeing with our clients is that it has to be part of the business strategy and you have to do what makes sense to reflect your consumer base, our world is changing. It has to be in your corporate social responsibility programs. And it's not just a training exercise. It's not about um, you know, making sure that people know all the terms. It's really about making sure that you have representation, you have equity, you're taking actual action to do things that are helping to advance people that have been historically underrepresented. And so, you know, I, I'm starting to see more progress. The thing that really made me so happy about it was that it's 88% think it's important to leadership. You know, a couple years ago, I don't know that we would have gotten that response. So to me, that's really hopeful that people are really starting to recognize the value. There was another recent stat that said it's like, CEOs are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion up 658% or something wow. crazy. So, you know, it's not a topic that is just a like fly by night thing. And it's not just about recruiting more diverse people and just doing a training. That is simply not what this is. So I'm really glad that we were able to get some really good insights in that particular area and around psychological safety, which we touched on earlier. What do you, one of the things that um, was surprising to me is that employees don't feel safe returning to work. And this study was done over 2021, 2022. I do wonder if that would be different now that we're yeah. in a little bit of a lull. But, you know, I, I wonder what it is. You know, sometimes it's from what we hear in our surveys with clients, it's the, the concern is I'm not going to be heard or seen or and especially for those historically underrepresented groups it's really hard for them to want to come back and so some of it I wonder is it am I afraid of COVID or am I really worried about the psychological safety of returning to work yeah I think it's both I honestly think it's both I think for some people I think it's, for some people it's both of those things um, some people definitely are worried and they're not just worried about their health they're worried about what if my kids school gets shut down. I mean, just two months ago, we were still seeing cases go up. What if school gets shut down and how am I gonna make an excuse about having to leave early again? So I think it's definitely around the physical safety, but the psychological safety is absolutely a reality. And for people that have worked home and then now have to go back, that can feel overwhelming. There's, um, there's a wonderful author, Minda Hartz, if um, Carrie, you might know her, but she she wrote the memo and right within, she has another book out now, but it talks exactly about psychological safety and what black women have to go through in the workforce. Um, but it was it was something that I learned a lot from. And I think 
you know, if leadership were to understand that, they would learn a lot from that as well. Unfortunately, a lot of leadership wants to think that they don't have to worry about safety at all. Yeah. I think hopefully this report will show them that they do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, from a career opportunities perspective, I mean, I think you were seeing also a lot of people leave organizations because they're thinking that they can go get another opportunity elsewhere. That one showed up pretty high as well. And, you know, what's unfortunate about that is that there's all these open positions in the companies that they're probably in, but because we don't have good coaching platforms in place and co haven't developed our managers and leaders to be better coaches or provide people access to where those opportunities lie or provide career lattices or any of those things, people just navigate, it's easier to navigate out than it is in, which is so problematic. It's so problem. It's so problematic. And you know, it's a culture issue. Like we talk about internal mobility, like it's a tech solution, like just go out and buy tech for internal mobility. Right, right. It's really a culture issue because if managers aren't sharing these opportunities with their employees, if employees can't find these opportunities anywhere because there isn't a, you know, a career site that is personalized for them, then they are going to look elsewhere. And if they don't have, you know, development opportunities, we found only 20% of companies are providing consistent career development opportunities. That's really low when that's what employees want. How can they think about what's next? What do you think about um, learning as a whole right now? Um, I'm curious, you know, there's been, um, it, everybody's working so much. I wonder how much learning is actually happening. <laughs> I know. It I mean, learning takes a time commitment for, from employees and they have to be able to, to feel like they have time to do that. And that's just not been the reality this year. I think learning has shifted quite a bit so that it's easier to build skills and it's, it feels more like an experience versus just going through, you know, a, a boring work exercise. And that's been a positive shift. I think in learning and development is that there are experiences now versus feeling like you're taking coursework. Um, so I think we're going to see more of that, but I do, I do agree. I think that employees, it feels like more work that they have to do versus something that will benefit them. We almost have to shift the narrative around it, that this is for them, not for the employer. What about, um, technology shifting gears a little bit and obviously learning experience technology has come a long way, but in general, employee experience technology and candidate experience and talent acquisition, you know, I know that you've done some other great research on um, how much more people are investing in talent acquisition software right now. And what is it that in terms of making the workplace more human centered and leveraging technology, while, while that sounds in conflict, it's actually not, um, you know, what are you seeing and hearing? What do you think needs to happen in that space? What should employers invest in? What's kind of like a waste? So it's so interesting. I mean, technology is such a big topic now because we've had this remote work and everyone needs technology to be able to function. Um, we saw like an increase, not just in recruiting software, but also employee experience. Even in the report, I think it was nearly 50% of companies are increasing their investment in employee experience solutions. Mm -hmm. So the challenge, I'll talk about kind of the benefits. So first, we'll talk about some of the challenges. I think the challenge is we think we're going to invest in technology and it's going to solve everything. And that's not the case. You know, there's work that companies have to do and it's real work and technology is not going to solve all of that. The other challenge with technology is that a lot of solutions are really hard to use. Like they sound simple, 
Like it might be really simple to think about well-being solutions or mental health solutions, and they actually can be pretty cumbersome to use. It's not easy. Employees have to remember their login. They don't know necessarily like how many forms they have to fill in to be able to, to use these solutions. Sometimes they come from a large ERP or HRMS, and then you've got to go through that whole process. So it doesn't feel like a good experience sometimes using technology. We probably all experience that in, in our work environment. And then, you know, we have to kind of get over that piece of it to really understand, are these solutions employees will use? Does this make them want and happy to use it or not? And then the positive side of it is automation, when it's used right, when it's used kind of in the workflow, it can take work on. So it can help employees free up time for their administrative work. So whether that's, you know, a chatbot, conversational AI, to be able to answer questions um, and get your questions answered in a way that's simple and you don't have to feel judged and you don't have to feel like you have to find, you know, 10 different people in HR to answer your question can be a really positive experience. Um, I've seen it used for onboarding. And when you think about like the new hire experience, one of the things that we found is that the, the biggest fear is, do I bring lunch in? Like when you're in an office environment, should I bring lunch in? Like, do I pack? Lunch is expensive. Do I have to bring money in? Do they provide lunch? Will my manager take me out to lunch? Should I pack a lunch? And that feels like an embarrassing question to ask your manager. Like you're not gonna on Sunday night call up your manager and ask, should I bring pack my lunch bag? But it is a very real fear. And to be able to ask that question through a chatbot 24 seven, quickly get an answer, um, is a, such a positive experience um, and can really alleviate a lot of anxiety before our first day of work. So I think, you know, I think there are some really positive aspects of where we're at with technology and there's new solutions. I mean, five years ago, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about mental health solutions and now we have a whole option of those in this landscape today. So there's a lot of benefits with technology. The one that also strikes me a lot is from a efficiency perspective, like if you think about all the different ways that we use technology and you've touched on this, we had a client that had 55 unique logins, like an employee within the organization. And, you know, they also had single sign on. <laughs> and so, you know, until you actually go and immerse yourself in the experience, which leads me to employee experience in general and understand what that actual day-to-day -day way of working is and how does somebody actually get done what they need to do to be successful and perform, the technology can really be a huge accelerator or it can be a giant inhibitor. And so a lot of times this employee experience mapping exercise I think is so important is really not just about you know, what it is on a whiteboard and in a journey map. It's also about like actually try to go apply for a job in your organization and see what happens. We do this when we do all of our culture and discovery work and our employee experience design work so that we can actually empathize with the employee. And it's really hard to get work done. And, you know, that's with them putting all these tools in place to make it easier. So, no. you know, it's, it's so unfortunate because the technology isn't the problem, it's the people in terms of how we're designing it to use it. The technology could work just fine. It's just 
we're not necessarily being thoughtful about what a human-centered experience with technology really looks like. Yeah, it's so true. And I think the other thing that I see a lot is there's a tendency to just go buy something else. Like we're, oh, we have an issue. Let's just buy, so this isn't working. People aren't using this solution. Let's just buy something else. And instead of saying, let's really try to fix it. A lot of the technology providers have done a lot. They've built, they've made acquisitions. They've built new products, you know, try to kind of figure out how to make this work before just purchasing something.